Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13, or rather 15 through 38 this morning as we pick up in the Gospel of Luke of chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anybody need a Bible? Just Luke chapter 3, verse 15 through 38. Anybody Chiefs fans here? Man, that game. I thought, oh no. I know we have 49ers fans here. I see a t-shirt. I don't see Chris Govia because he's a, he's a 49ers too, but uh, a lot of fun. I enjoy watching it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into God's Word. (laughs) Why'd you bring that up, Tom? Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we read, Now as the people were in expectation, and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all that he shut John up in prison. And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and the son of all these other guys, dropping down to verse 38. <laughs> the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. The title of my message this morning is, What Do You Expect? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can gather together in this place, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to give us understanding of your word, application in our lives of your word, that we might grow closer to you and our relationship with you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, we pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they would see their need for you and they would turn from their sin and they'd turn to you and find salvation today for their souls. Thank you for your word, the power that it has through your Holy Spirit to change our lives. We invite your work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you expect? It's a story I found of a pastor who gave an unusual sermon one day uh, uh, using a peanut as an illustration and, and made important points of the wisdom of God in nature. On the way out, one of the members greeted the pastor at the door and said, That was very interesting, Pastor. I never expected to learn so much from a nut. Let me ask you this morning, what do you expect when you come to church? 
You might say when we're done, I never expected to learn so much from a nut. But in any case, see, your expectation often determines whether or not a particular church service is going to be meaningful to you or not. John the Baptist here has been telling the people that Jesus was coming. And in response, it was their constant expectation that the Messiah would be soon present among them. Now, we should have that same expectation, that as we gather together, Jesus is present among us. In fact, there are two familiar verses that Jesus expressed for us, so we would expect Jesus to be present when we gather together as his church. First, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And then we know in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, in chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord is described as himself uh, walking in the midst of the, of the churches there as it's gathered together. So as we gather together, no matter what day of the week it is, Sunday morning, uh, you know, Wednesday night, Thursday, men's women's Bible studies, as we gather together as a church, we should expect Jesus to be present among us. But secondly, we should also expect him to make his presence known through our worship, through the teaching of the word, and through the fellowship of the saints. You see here, the people in verse 15 that were listening to John the Baptist were in expectation, it says. And as a result, when you're expecting Jesus to come, two things will happen. And these are our two points this morning, just two. When you're expecting Jesus to come, number one, our hearts will be open. And number two, heaven will be open to us. So when you are expecting Jesus to come, first our hearts will be open. Now, understand, as we will see, Jesus is God, and therefore he's omnipresent. He's present everywhere at once. So when we are together as a church, we don't need to figure out how to get Jesus to come to our church. He's already here. Maybe some of you have been inviting you know, someone to come to your church, to our church for, for a while, and then you just start bribing them. Like, hey, uh, we'll go to lunch afterwards. Well, where are you going to take me? Well, we'll go to, not like that restaurant. You know, and you're bright. You just got to get him to church. We don't have to bribe Jesus to come to church. He's already here. Yet, still, it was Jesus who reminded us that, that he would be present among us in a special way when we gathered together. Why did he say this? Because we need reminding. Because when you and I come to church with open hearts, expecting to hear from Jesus, expecting to be touched by his love, by his spirit in your life, you're not going to leave here disappointed. But if you come not expecting, you're going to leave here just as the way you came in. That's why we need to live in expectation that God wants to do great and mighty things in our lives. Now, I do think we can gain a few insights from this scene at the Jordan River as the people in verse 15 showed up with a sense of expectation. In fact, I want to point out five P's, if you're taking notes, five P's of expectation. What caused these people to expect Jesus to show up? And what was the first thing that brought about this expectation? Well, the first thing that contributed to a sense of expectation is, first, the preaching. The preaching. Why? Because the preaching was all about Jesus. Remember last time we learned that John considered himself nothing more than the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. But it was his strong preaching about Jesus that built an expectation in the people. Listen, if you're listening to some pastor and you don't hear the name of Jesus being spoken of, taught about, lifted up, if Jesus isn't a part of that message, then you need to stop listening to them. 
Jesus should always be the main subject running through all of our messages. And I think in this seeker-friendly world we're living in, churches have gotten away to teaching about Jesus. They teach about principles of, of happiness or five steps to fulfillment, but seldom is taught, as in John's words in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Folks, the reason we gather together is, is Jesus. It's all about Him. It's about Him who's taken away our sin and the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And, and the preaching needs to be always one of letting people know that Jesus is the one that died for our sins, that, that He came, that who He is, and He's our Savior and He's our Lord. And as we gather, we learn more and more about Him. And then the second thing that brought about this expectation of Jesus is not only the preaching about Jesus, but who John was pointing people to. And that's the second one, pointing. Pointing people to Jesus. Have you ever seen those videos where, you, you know, they got some kids in there, they go in the middle of the street and they start pointing up and they look, look like they're seeing something. And before long, there's this whole crowd there and they're all looking up and there's nothing there, but they're, they're pointing. They're expecting to see something. In the same way, when you point people to Jesus, it brings about a sense of expectation. Look now at verses 15 and 16. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Stop there for a moment. Here we see that the people in verse 15 were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Now, John would have none of it. I mean, he immediately put a stop to it. He said, hold on a minute, hold on. No, no, no. Listen, verse 16. I need baptize you in water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandals up I'm not even worthy to lose. I, I, I'm a nobody. Immediately, he takes the focus off of himself and puts it right back onto Jesus. From the very onset of Jesus, or, or John's ministry, rather, he didn't come to talk about himself. He came to point people to Jesus Christ. Now, notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, I indeed baptize you with water. I indeed am out here day after day after day wearing these hot animal skins, unappreciated, eating nothing but locusts and honey. Do you have any idea how old that can get? Fried locusts and honey, barbecued locusts and honey, locusts and honey casserole, locusts and honey pancakes. But don't mind me. It's all about Jesus. Listen, you're not pointing people to, to, to Jesus. You're pointing people to yourself. John would have no part of that. In fact, John said in John chapter 3, he must de- increase and I must decrease. John pointed people away from himself and pointed to Jesus. So we can get in that same mode of what I did for Jesus and what I'm doing for Jesus and letting people know just how spiritual you are. But that's not pointing people to Jesus. That's pointing people to yourself. Pointing people to Jesus means losing yourself. It's having no ambition, no attitude, no activity in your life that would lift yourself up and be an obstacle or hindrance to people seeing Jesus in your life. So people expect to see Jesus when we're preaching about Jesus, when we're pointing people to Jesus. Third thing that gave the people a sense of expectation expectation for Jesus is the power from Jesus. That the power would come from Jesus. Look at verse 16. Again, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mighty than I is coming, who stands on the top, I'm not worthy to lose. Catch, catch this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John was a servant whose ministry was to baptize with water. But John says the Lord was the one mightier than he, 
He's the one they should focus on. But notice the emphasis in that verse. It's still on Jesus. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. The, the emphasis is on Jesus. Now, what does it mean when John says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, John explains it. Verse 17, he says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. See, John here uses a familiar agricultural picture to explain Jesus' twofold baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we'll look more at what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is towards the end, but, but, but the fire here as well. You see, at the time that a farmer, well, he would take a large pitchfork-type shovel, and he would toss the grain into the air, and the grain would fall to the ground, but the chaff would be blown away in the breeze. Then they would sweep up all that chaff, and they would burn it in the fire. So John is saying that Jesus will divide people into two groups. Those who will receive him will be given the Holy Spirit to indwell in their lives, and those who will reject him will be burning forever in the fires of hell. Listen, if you're preaching Jesus and pointing people to Jesus, people will be confronted with his power to save them. But they also need to know uh, the awful alternative. Listen, it's great to tell people that God loves them because he does. It's great to tell people their sin can be forgiven because God will forgive them if they will turn to him by faith. It's great to tell people that that Christ will fill that void in their life. That is all true. But if we only share that, it's not the whole truth. See, there are repercussions for not believing. Eternal separation from God in a place of torment where the Bible says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we only talk about heaven, but never talk about or warn about hell, we only offer forgiveness and never speak of repentance, then we're not given the full, authentic gospel message. Yes, one day he will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff here he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you're going to want to make sure you're a part of the wheat and not the chaff. Because as we looked at last week, God will judge sin. He must, because he's a just God. And they need to know that there's a judgment that is coming from God against sin. They need to know what to expect if they reject Jesus Christ. But they also need to know that they can expect to be spared from that judgment if they look to Jesus who came to take away the sin of the world to die in our place. They need to know that according to Hebrews 7.25, Jesus has the power to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if you're preaching Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, telling them of the power of Jesus to save them, then there's going to be a conviction of sin in that person's life and a call to purity. And that's the fourth P, purity. Look at verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. So Herodias had been married to Herod's half-brother Philip. She was thus Herod's wife, sister-in-law, and niece all at the same time. It's just a wicked family here. As well as we read it, there's many other evils which Herod had done. Now we know from the other Gospels that John was able to rebuke Herod. He was able to do this because John kept himself in a place of purity in his own walk with God. In the same way, if you come expecting to hear from Jesus, to receive from the Lord, but you're holding unconfessed sin in your heart, then the only thing you can expect to hear from Jesus is your need to repent. God calls all of us to have personal purity in our lives. And we need to make sure that it's there. Finally, if you're preaching Jesus, 
pointing people to Jesus, telling them of the power of Jesus to save them. There's going to be a call of purity, but no, you could expect 5P persecution. That's number 5. Look at verse 19 again in verse 20. Again, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. Verse 20, also had this, added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Now we know that John not only was imprisoned by Herod, but ultimately he would have John beheaded. So how does that apply to us? Well, hopefully not, none of us will be beheaded, but if, if that, but that if you're expecting in your relationship with Jesus, that it's always going to be blue skies, safe, comfortable, healthy, wealthy life, then I hate to be a bearer of, of, of bad news, but you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because if you're truly living the Christian life, truly standing up for your faith in Christ, the world isn't going to applaud you. We see that in our world today. They're coming against you, even to the, to the point of persecution. But listen, Jesus said, Blessed are you when that happens. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Matthew five eleven and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you stand up for Christ, expect persecution is going to come. So now, because we know Jesus is present everywhere, He has promised to manifest His presence and make Himself known to us, then this is something that we can count on. Something that we can expect. It's therefore a realistic expectation that when we gather together as a church, God is going to move in our hearts individually and as a church corporately. He's going to speak to our hearts through His Word. So when uh, you expect Jesus to come, our hearts will be open to receive. The people expected Jesus, their hearts were touched, and this brings us to our second point. When you're expecting Jesus, heaven is open. Again, look at verse 21, verse 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while He prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now understand, Jesus did not need to be baptized for repentance and the remission of sins. He was, he is the perfect sinless Savior. So why then was Jesus baptized? It was to identify uh, with us, the human race, to place himself among us so we would understand he was here to represent us. This idea of representation is extremely important to our understanding of sin and salvation. Listen to these verses found in 1 Corinthians and the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians 15.45 And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.47 the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Romans 5.15 But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And finally, Romans 5.17 For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we understand from those verses that Adam was the first man and there in the Garden of Eden he represented the entire human race. He sinned, that sin passed down, we've all sinned because we're his descendant. But Jesus, the Lord from heaven, is called the second man. He also represented us. The difference is that Jesus successfully resisted Satan 
and his temptations, and we'll see that next week. Jesus became the leader of the new creation. All those who receive him as their Savior are born again as a new creation in Christ. Paul would write that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, with that, verse 23 we read, Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of, of Heli. And, and see, Jews considered uh, you a full son of Abraham at the age of 13, but you weren't considered mature until you're age 30. And that's where Jesus was at this point. And in verses 22 through 38, we have the genealogy that shows us our Savior all the way back to Adam. I won't try, try to read them. I'd mess them up. But I should mention that this genealogy differs from the one given in Matthew's Gospel. There's several explanations for the differences, but the most common one is that Matthew's gospel uh, gives us Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, Mary's husband, the legal father of Jesus, while Luke's uh, genealogy is through Mary, the actual line of Jesus. But what is important for us to understand is at the end of verse 38, where we read, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam was the son of God in the sense that he was made in the image and likeness of God, Jesus was the son of Adam in the sense that he was fully human, although we know from his previous, our previous studies that he was miraculously conceived and therefore without sin. So you see, calling Jesus the son of Adam, the son of God, cements this principle that Jesus came to represent the human race as a second man, as a second Adam. And his representation, this representation is important to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As our representative, Jesus took upon himself our sin and the penalty and the punishment in his place. He's given us his perfect righteousness. Now, we may not like being compared to Adam and declared a sinner, but that's the bad news and that's the truth of it. But the good news is we now can be represented by Jesus and be declared righteous by giving our life to Him. Now with that, I want to spend the remaining of our time focusing back on verse 21 and 22. Let's read them again, starting at the end of verse 21. We read, Jesus also was baptized, and while He prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now there is not a more perfect picture of, of the Trinity than in these verses right here. Jesus praying, the Holy Spirit descending, the voice of God the Father saying, you are my, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now I love that it says here that the heaven was open. Listen, when you're expecting Jesus to come, the heavens will be open. Jesus saw it. John saw it. We're not sure if everybody else around saw it, but we see it through the pages of Scripture. We might, you know, what might it mean to see the heaven open to you as we gather together? Well, let me suggest three things based upon the three members of the Trinity. First, Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions that uh, while Jesus was being baptized, that he was praying. Do you know that Jesus prays for you all the time? And we know that God answers his prayers. Heaven Heaven is open to you because Jesus prays for you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. This is a reminder that Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that once he ascended to heaven, he would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And then the figure of the dove 
reminds you and I of the gentleness and the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Heaven is opened in that you receive God's Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the Father spoke from heaven approving His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father is declaring in retrospect as He reviewed Jesus' 30 years on the earth, He is well pleased. And up until this point, Jesus had done, all, all Jesus had done was grown in wisdom and stature by being obedient. Obedient. But see, it reminds all of us that first and foremost, God is well pleased with you as you simply fellowship with Him. It pleases Him to talk with you and for you to talk to Him. You don't need to do any great deed for God just to spend time with Him. That pleases Him. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have good works and it shouldn't follow. But the priority in our lives needs to be that of that intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father through prayer, through the reading of His Word, spending time in worship. So we see heaven is open through Jesus praying for you, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and the Father well pleased with you. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives, the Trinity. Now, even though the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, the Trinity is found all throughout the Bible. Again, we see that Jesus, the Son, comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Son uh, in a dove-like fashion and the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. Now, you know, there's a lot of cults out there that deny the Trinity. There's even religious groups that, that, that are known as Jesus-only people. They're often called the United Pentecostals or some longer title they like, they like to call themselves. The United Pentecostal Church in Jesus' name only church. But the main doctrinal difference is their belief that Jesus, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. That, that it's only one Jesus, Jesus only. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to ask them to explain these verses. They, they couldn't. Because when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Where did, where did the voice come from if, if it wasn't the Father? This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. Jesus wasn't practicing ventriloquism. I mean, this group of people can, can really dig for themselves a hole try to explain this particular verse away. And as I said, there's, there's, sadly to say, there are many organizations that would have you not read your Bible, but read their literature that, that, that draws away from what the truth says. But the Bible clearly teaches that though there's only one true God, He's revealed or He's manifested in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is independent of each other, but never do they act independently. Now, here John brings up the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, we read, speaking of Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Often you'll hear that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a very controversial subject. Some say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is simultaneously with your salvation. When a person becomes a Christian, they are automatically baptized by the Spirit and the body of Christ, and that's that. But there's more to it than that. Of all the gifts given to mankind by God, there is none greater than the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book, Living Water, puts it this way. It's critical that we understand this. The Holy Spirit is the primary agent of the Godhead working in the world today. He is the person of the Godhead to whom we relate to most closely. He is the one who is gathering a body of believers, the bride of Christ, to present unto the Lord. And the church through the Holy Spirit is doing the work of God in the world. End quote. See, the Holy Spirit has many functions, roles, and activities. Three in particular. First, the Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 8, that he would send the Holy Spirit into the world. 
says, and when he had come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, 8. <clears throat> so God sends his Holy Spirit to draw man and woman to himself. Listen, everyone has built in them this God consciousness, whether they admit it or, or not. Man is, is born without excuse. And when the Holy Spirit applies God's truth to people's minds to convince them that they are sinners in the need of salvation, it should trigger a response from them. An acceptance, acceptance or a rejection. Acceptance brings salvation. But then once you receive that salvation, once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives personally. That's the second point. The Holy Spirit lives in us. When the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And clearly, He seals you. He's with you. He's in you. The Bible clearly teaches that. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, we read of Jesus after His resurrection, there in the upper room with His disciples present, saying to them, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. At that point, the Holy Spirit came into the lives of these men. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit does come inside of you. But there's a third aspect of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. See, right after Jesus breathed into his disciples the Holy Spirit, he told them in Luke 24:49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So the Holy Spirit is there to draw us to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is there when we receive the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes from above, from power from the Lord. Acts 1.8 tells us, Jesus said, when you, shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And of course, we know there in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, that there was this sound like the rushing of a mighty wind, the Spirit of God came upon them, and they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, you know, believe that we need to have another day of Pentecost. That's already come, and it was great. We don't need another Pentecost any more than we need another Calvary. But what we need is to fully appropriate all that was made available to us on that day of Pentecost, because after this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter, we know, stood up and said in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, for the promise, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God recall. So he's saying to us, that promise comes all the way down to us, afar off, as many as our Lord would call. And if you look, just look at the dramatic change that happened in the life of Peter. I mean, this common fisherman, who at one point couldn't even bring himself to admit that he was a follower of Jesus Christ, but then on the day of Pentecost, he was so empowered by the Holy Spirit that he's preaching and some 3,000 people get saved right there on the spot. That's power. Listen, God has that same power available to you and to me. But it's power with a purpose. It's directed power. So often we see these churches and people, oh, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Reminds me of when I was a kid, they had a toy called the Wiggle Worm. I don't know if you know what that was. It was like this long hose. You'd connect it to the, to the hose bib. And on the other end, had this little mushroom-like cap on it and had two little eyes on it. And you turn the water on, it would spray up into it, and this thing would flop all over the place, and you'd get all wet. It was a lot of fun. You'd get all wet. It was fun. That's uncontrolled power. Power with no direction. That's the type of stuff we see in some churches. But that's not the type of power that the Lord, Lord wants to give to us. 
He wants us to give us power with direction. Power with a purpose. Again, for what? Acts 1.8 You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. Power to be that witness for Christ. I think that for many of us, me included, we can lose sight of why God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God gives us that power to be a witness. The power to share your faith. The power to present the gospel in an understandable way. But for many of us, we're not looking for that power in our lives. I think instead we're looking at our world, and I think we can become more like Jonah rather than like Peter. Remember Jonah? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to tell the people to repent. Jonah wanted God to judge them. And he knew that if he told them to repent, they would. So he said, said, no. Because these, these Assyrians, they were a wicked people. They were noted for their cruelty and their idolatry. And Nineveh was their capital. And it contained many temples, including one to Ishtar, the Assyrian goddess that some scholars believe was the namesake of Nineveh. Nineveh was known for its great wealth and power and prestige. But God wanted to give them an opportunity to repent. So he told Jonah to go and warn the people of Nineveh that that judgment was coming. But Jonah didn't want to obey the Lord. Jonah wanted judgment to come. That's the whole reason Jonah went the other way. He got on that ship and said, I'm going to Joppa. But we all know that God had other plans. We know the story. Jonah, you know, storm hit. They threw him overboard. Jonah got swallowed by a great fish. It took him three days, three days before he would surrender to God's will and say, all right, I'll go. I'll go to Nineveh. He, he wanted judgment on them so bad that he then vomited out by the great fish and Nineveh tells, tells him what God's going to do. And, and instead of rejecting the Lord's warning, these Ninevites humbled themselves. They repented of their sin from the king on down. The whole city fasted, put on sackcloth and ashes. Even they dressed their animals in sackcloth. So seeing that the city of Nineveh repented of their wickedness, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with, and he did not destroy them at that time. They'd go back into it and do it later. But Jonah still wasn't happy about it, though. You know, but he did finally do what God called him to do. Here's my point. We can look around our world, our, our nation today. We can see the sin all around us and the groups that support sin to the fullest and the wickedness that we're seeing in our culture today. And the pride and the prestige we have as a nation. And we can have the same heart that Jonah had. Lord, get them. Lord, bring judgment on those people who have killed the unborn. Lord, judge those people who are promoting sexual immorality in our nation. Lord, bring judgment on those who are following these false gods in our country today. And God will. But right now, according to Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained, Jesus Christ. I think today we are, as Christians, are looking for Jesus to come back and judge these wicked people in our world. And he will. But the truth is right now, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives working and moving uh, to, uh, in our lives to be that witness for Christ. Preaching about Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus. Living lives of purity and expecting persecution, but most importantly, having the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives to be that witness, to be like Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. So we need to be looking for opportunities to lead people to Christ instead of praying for their destruction. Because destruction will come. Judgment will come. There's coming a time, I believe, very, very soon. 
where Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's exactly why we need to be like John the Baptist, getting our nation ready for the Messiah, helping people to realize their need for Jesus and expecting that Jesus' return is, is near. And to pray that their hearts would be open to the gospel, that they would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. We need to have burning hearts for the lost. But we can't do that in our own strength, in our own power. We need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John said Jesus would do. So what I want to do as we close out our service this morning is to do that. Just to pray that God would give us this power. And maybe you prayed before, and that's great. But listen, you can always ask for a refill of the Holy Spirit. That's the good news. God doesn't just fill you once, but, but over and over again. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs. But the word for be filled there is be being filled. In other words, it means literally being filled over and over again. So as we pray for that filling, for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, expect that He will do just that. To fill you with that boldness from on high. And how do we receive it? The same way we we receive Christ, by faith. Now maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. And today you've heard the gospel for the, perhaps the very first time that Jesus came to this world to die for your sin and by believing in Him you can, be, you can be forgiven and given this new life. You know, this last Thursday, uh, singer-songwriter David Crosby of Crosby, Stills and Nash passed away. He was 81 years old. Some of you younger people may not know who he was, but he was a very talented singer-songwriter of the 60s and 70s. But what's interesting about David Crosby was what he was expecting when he was about to die. Sadly, on the day before he died, David Crosby took to Twitter to joke that heaven is overrated. He said, quote, I heard the place is overrated, cloudy. His tweet read in response to a screenshot of Google, uh, Google search that asked, can we go to heaven with tattoos? Such a talented musician and singer. Too bad it, you know, it didn't appear to, to, he saw the relationship with the one who created him and gave him that talent. He would have known then what to expect when he died. And he would have had that, that hope of heaven. One person responded to his death by writing these words. And, and I don't know the person, but I thought his words were great. So I want to agree with them. Uh, let me quote them to you. He said, if you end up in a burning hell for all eternity, it won't be because you have a tattoo or because you have a nose ring or because you drink beer or have an addiction, addictions, smoke cigarettes or because you spent time in prison. It won't be because you didn't do good enough deeds. It won't be because you didn't belong to the right church. It won't be because you didn't belong to the right political party. It won't be because of that dumb thing you did that you don't want anybody else to know about. It won't be because of what anyone, anyone else did to you. It will be because you refused to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He already paid for all the stupid stuff you've done and all the stupid stuff you're going to do when He died on the cross and rose again. End quote. I agree. Listen, Jesus offers salvation as a free gift. Because, let's face it, if it was up to us, we couldn't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. We'd have no chance. The gift of salvation is there for you to receive. The decision is totally up to you. The price for your sin has been paid. The way to heaven for you has been made. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And let me tell you, you've not gone too far from God's grace and mercy that He can't give you another chance. That He can't give you a do-over. But there has to come a moment, a point in your life when you say, I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, Lord, come into my life, forgive me if I sin, so I know that I'm going to heaven. Have you done that yet? 
If not, that needs to be the first step. And I pray that you make that commitment to him first and foremost. But for us as believers, Jesus is coming back. Expect him at any moment. But knowing this, we only have a short time left. And we need a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To be filled with the Holy Spirit for that boldness that Peter had, we can have today. So as we close, I'm going to pray and give an opportunity for those to come to Christ, first and foremost, but also to ask God to give us that that filling of His Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, we thank You for the gift of our salvation. We thank You, Lord, for Your love towards us, that You gave Your only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to You, They would make that decision. As your Holy Spirit has been drawing them to you, help them to decide that they want you. They want their sin forgiven. They want to be born again. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Christ? You've not made that commitment, but this morning is the day you want to do that. Would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? Anybody at all? Just between you and the Lord, giving your life to Christ. Father, we thank you that we are believers here. And Lord, we do pray for the lost. We pray, Lord, for, for those that don't know you. Lord, I think we can all think of in our minds one person, a friend, a family member that doesn't have a relationship with you. They're not born again. Lord, we pray for them right now. We pray as your, your Holy Spirit is drawing them to yourself, that their eyes would be opened, that they would see their need for you, and they would respond to the gospel. That you would give us those opportunities to share with them, Lord. Lord, thank you. When we surrender our life to you, we receive the power to be your child. We know your word says, but as many as received him, to them gave him he the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lord, I thank you for that. And Lord, as we continue in prayer, we as believers, we need the power of your Holy Spirit working and moving in our lives. Lord, we're so thankful that we have a message for a lost world. In these critical times in which we're living in, in our nation, and in our world, they need to hear about you, Jesus. And so we ask that, Lord, you give us burning hearts for the lost. But, Lord, we need this power that you promised. Lord, we need to be baptized with your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit upon us right now? Give us, Lord, the power that we ask. Lord, we want all the power that you have for us that we might be your witness, that we might reach the world, this town, our family, our friends, with the hope that we have. So Lord, send your spirit. We pray these things.